you would open to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7, we're going to study chapters 5, 6, and 7, but I'll just read for us chapter 7 to begin with. This is God's word. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. For I looked out the window of my house. I looked out through my lattice. And I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight and the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him. Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him and with bold face says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I've paid my vows. So, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He is gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till it's arrow passes, uh, pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. And so, Father, we already just reading this chapter feel the weight and the warning. Not just from this father in Proverbs speaking to his son, but from our father, from you, Lord, speaking to us. As your children. Lord would you give us hearts of wisdom. Would you help us to treat your word. Not as the words of men. But what it really is. The word of God. We pray for you to bring good. Good fruit. In all of our hearts. And in all of our marriages through this. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Well um, this is week nine. Uh, in our marriage series. Uh, there will be two weeks after this week. Uh, next week, we'll get into the issue of divorce and remarriage. And then uh, next week, or the, the week after that, we will do a concluding sermon, uh, kind of hit some things that we have not uh, discussed yet. Um, today, we're going to look at the issue of adultery, uh, which is not the same as an affair. Okay, An affair is an old-fashioned word for going to an event or a party, uh, the biblical word is adultery, uh, breaking our covenant union with our spouse, covenant unfaithfulness to our spouse. Now, let me, I want to just say from the beginning, I want the children here for this sermon. I think that's important. I talk to a lot of adults uh, who, when I begin to talk to them, uh, more in depth and they'll be honest and share things with me they'll say I was not taught certain things about adultery or about sexual sin I wasn't taught in church wasn't taught in the home 
And if a church doesn't talk about adultery or sexual sin, uh, typically Christian parents in that church won't talk about it to their kids either. And a, a generation is left experimenting, listening to whatever voices are speaking about these things, and they're stuck with suffering the consequences by experience on many of the things that that church and those families neglected to talk about, that God does talk about. And so there's a better way. Uh, there's a better way. The better way is that the church preach on these matters and that it equip parents to feel like they can have appropriate uh, conversations with their children on these issues. And the key word there's appropriate. There are wrong ways to talk about these things publicly and even with our children, and there are very right and appropriate ways. And so that's, that's my goal uh, this morning when we come to the book of Proverbs. Uh, here, here's what we need to understand about the literary form of Proverbs. This is actually helpful in beginning to study this, is the literary format. Uh, you have in these 31 chapters of Proverbs a father speaking to his son. Uh, a father speaking to his son, chapter after chapter, uh, speaking and pouring in wisdom to his son's heart and mind, everything that matters about life. And you say, well, what's the main thing that the father's talking to his son about? If we had to say, what's the, the primary topic he talks about? Women. That's the primary thing more than anything else that he discusses with his son. In fact, he frames the whole book as a decision that his son must make between two women. It's the whole literary structure of the book. So in, uh, he personifies wisdom and foolishness as two women, lady wisdom and lady folly. And the father's essentially saying to his son, to the degree in which you pursue lady folly, you will receive curses and judgments. To the degree in which you pursue lady wisdom, you will receive blessing and honor. That's the whole framework of the book is juxtaposing and personifying these two women in the category of wisdom and foolishness. So in Proverbs 4, 6, it says, get wisdom, he says to his son, do not forsake her. She will keep you, love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. So he's saying to his son, as one of the ultimate things about life, there is a decisions that you will have to make every single day between two women. Will you choose Lady Folly or will you choose Lady Wisdom? Your life literally hinges upon that son. That, that is the tone of the father to the son. And this whole book is to find Lady Wisdom. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he actually puts flesh and blood to it. He actually uh, turns Lady Wisdom, which is just personified, uh, into a real person. And then he juxtaposes two women, the adulterous woman and the godly wife. And he actually says, this will actually take concrete form in a person. You'll have to choose. Do you go after the forbidden woman, the adulteress, or do you go after your wife? And... It's interesting when you get to chapter 31, so for 30 chapters you have the father speaking to his son, but when you get to chapter 31, what you actually have is the mother steps in. And it says this in Proverbs 31.1, an oracle that his mother taught him. And it's actually a Hebrew acronym is, is what it actually is. It's the Hebrew alphabet. And the mother is teaching the son about the ideal woman. The idyllic woman, the mother, from I think from a young age, had this Hebrew acronym where she would go down the Hebrew alphabet and say, this is the type of woman you're to find. From a young age, she was laying before her son this ideal woman. And I, I really think that, uh, I don't know if the women will all believe me on this, but I, I think I can speak for the men, uh, that deep down in the heart of a good man, is a desire that for a woman he can trust, for a woman who respects him, and for a woman who does him good. Look at verse 11 in chapter 31. It says, the heart of her husband trusts in her, 
she will have uh, he will have no lack of gain she does him good and not harm all the days of her life and then he begins to describe the work ethic or she begins to describe the work ethic of this type woman her selflessness uh, toward her husband toward her kids toward uh, those in need she's rising early she's serving others she's competent intelligent she's running a business without neglecting her family and home all for the purpose of not being the primary breadwinner of the home but for the primary purpose of supplementing her husband's uh, income and giving what we would call delicacies extras she she clothes them in finer clothes than they might have had otherwise she uh, has extra to be able to give to those in need and so this is not a weak miserable woman as the feminists might portray her uh, it says in verse 25 strength and dignity are her clothing she laughs at the time to come so she's not stressed she's not worried she's not always uh, just consumed in her emotion she's she's happy she's strong she's joyful and intelligent it says she opens her mouth in wisdom the teaching of kindness is on her tongue verse 28 her children rise up and call her blessed her husband also and he praises her and then the husband says many women have done excellently but you surpass them all charm is deceitful beauty is vain but here's the best thing about her a woman who fears the lord is to be praised and so all the father's wisdom to his son for 30 chapters and then the mother's wisdom culminates in son you got you got choices to make here do you go after the woman who will bring death and destruction to you or do you go after the godly ideal wife that will bless you all of your days and it's interesting i said this the first week of this marriage series i actually believe that every uh, passage on marriage after Genesis 2.24 is expounding upon Genesis 2.24. I think the whole book of Proverbs is expounding on the, the man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's essentially what the parents are trying to say. You're going to need to leave us one day, and here's the type of woman you need to find and marry. Uh, he, he's building upon, these parents are building upon Genesis 224. So that's our structure and, and literary framework for Proverbs. I want to drop down uh, into Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and look at a few things. Um, here, here's where we'll go. I want to see first three types of adultery that I see in this passage. Three types of adultery. And then we'll, we'll come at the end and you know, quickly look at five protections from adultery. Uh, here is the first type of adultery. We would call it heart adultery. Heart adultery. Jesus lays this out very clearly in Matthew 5, 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Is that Jesus? Did he come up with that? No, he did not. He's quoting the seventh commandment. And then he says, but I say to you, now, some people misunderstand that and think Jesus is adding some extra commandment here. He's not. He's clarifying their misunderstanding of the seventh commandment, saying something more is happening in this commandment than what you think. And then he says this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's his clarification of what the seventh commandment actually means. He's not giving some extra uh, additional teaching that he's making up. He's saying, this is what God said to Moses and Israel in the seventh commandment. Even to the heart level, you can commit adultery in your heart by looking with lust. And he creates this category of what we would call heart adultery. Now, just let me pause for a second because... Uh, it's interesting, I, I was listening to an interview a few months ago uh, by a man named Dennis Prager. Maybe some of you have heard him. He was talking to Jordan Peterson. Uh, they're having a discussion, and uh, Prager is a, is a Jew, and he said this, Jews don't believe in a category of adultery of the heart, only physical adultery. So Prager, a, a Jew, says, we don't even have that category of adultery of the heart. We only believe in physical adultery. And then he went so far as to even make that worse 
by saying, therefore, pornography isn't a problem if it keeps you from physical adultery. Now, uh, some modern Jews might believe what Prager does. I mean, he obviously believes that. That is not what the Jewish scriptures teach. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, for an example, says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's talking about the heart. Um, here's how Proverbs 6, 25 says it, how the father says it to his son. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Don't desire her beauty in your heart. Uh, I heard a... Uh, a story once of a woman, uh, a mother, who was standing at the checkout line at the grocery store with her kids, and uh, one of her sons was looking wide-eyed at one of the magazines uh, uh, with a woman on it, and, and the mother said, don't look at that. It's nasty. And, uh, and I thought, you know, that's not what you say to your son. You tell him, don't look at that, but you don't say, don't look, it's nasty, you say, don't look, it will kill you. Or you say what I think the father here is saying to his son, don't look at her, she's not yours. She's not yours. Don't desire her beauty, she's not yours. Um, let's be clear though, uh, God did design for man to be attracted to a woman's beauty. That is part of the design. Remember in the garden, uh, the first time Adam saw Eve, God did not say, Adam, close your eyes. That's nasty. She's not appropriately clothed. God designed that. God was pleased with that. She was his. In fact, he didn't have any other options. <laughs> he gave one wife and that was the only woman alive at that point. Which is, which is the point? Eve was Adam's standard of beauty because she was the only other woman that he saw. But I think that's the point. I think that's the point for us men, that we would look at our wives as if there are no other. That we would look at our wives as if she is the standard of beauty. I've got blinders on, I'm not looking at other women's and desiring their beauty. My wife is the standard of beauty. You put your marriage back in the Garden of Eden, and you're Adam and Eve seeing your wife going, she's beautiful. I don't even, I, there's no comparisons. There are no other women to look at. Is that not what we're aiming at and trying to get back to? I think that is the point. Now, here's the reality, though. That's paradise. That's idyllic. But here's the reality. There's about three or four million other women on this earth at this point. It isn't just Adam and Eve. There's lots of women. A million, I said million, a billion, I'm sorry. And, uh, and so what do we do with this reality? I'm not saying that it's wrong to see another woman's beauty. I think this is actually an important qualification. God, uh, God actually creates the categories of beauty. In the Bible, it says that some women are plain and others are attractive. Uh, God makes those type of distinctions. I don't think it's wrong for a man or a woman to say that's a beautiful person and acknowledge the reality of that. What's sinful and wrong is when it says you begin to desire their beauty. Um, the way the father says it to the son is do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, with her bodily features. Don't look long enough to be drawn into it, to lust after it. Uh, that that's what becomes problematic. I, I really believe, though, that that uh, our wives are to be our standard of beauty, and not just what they looked like when they walked down the wedding altar on the wedding day, but what they look like twenty years later, thirty years later, fifty years later. Uh, I think that there, uh, I know that there are many men who, according to cultural standards. Uh, their wives would be considered extremely beautiful. And these men look at all sorts of women 
commit adultery and are unsatisfied with their wives. And there are men who have, according to cultural standards of beauty, have very average wives. And and yet that man is able to have eyes for that woman that he truly says and means, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. I only see your beauty. And he really believes she is as beautiful, way more beautiful than she thinks she is, is how he sees her. And you say, well, how does this man's heart get to be this way? Well, it has to do with the purity and undefiled nature of his heart that he hasn't ruined by looking at many other women. I would say 99% of the men who aren't attracted to their spouses anymore, it isn't because of their wife. It has everything to do with the man's heart and eyes that have not been kept pure. I really believe that. Um, I think that's proven by one statistic uh, that I read recently that said less than 10% of those that cheated did so with someone they considered more attractive than their spouse, which shows it's not really about physical beauty. It's more about something emotional, which is the second category that of adultery we need to see, what we would call emotional adultery. Um, now, the way the father begins to warn his son about this is in story form. Uh, and so I want to try to modernize. I've heard a few stories that I kind of put together, and I'm going to just read these to us because I think this modernizes the way the father is warning his son. So picture a man at work, and a new woman is hired at the office. They don't even meet for some time, but he eventually he's sitting at the table with other coworkers, and they meet. They begin to have small talk about their families, careers, lives, weather, nothing inappropriate at all. But over time, they, the, the conversations begin to reveal their shared problem of drifting away from their spouse. Soon they find they communicate better uh, together than with their spouses and notice that they have similar interests and hobbies. Still, they have no plans outside of work. They just enjoy casual friendship, but slowly over time, they begin to compare their spouses to this work friend, and their spouses are falling short. Then one day, the man in this case realizes, I'm in love with another woman. I'm a, I'm a member of the church. I'm a, I'm a Christian. How, how did this even happen? And he's deeply troubled. It begins to affect his work. His relationships suffer. He, he tries to cut off talking to her. Some weeks he successfully does. Other weeks he, he just feels the urge to want to speak to her or be near her. And all of a sudden, without realizing it, one day his, in his weakness, he commits adultery. Take another couple. They've been married for 20 years or so. They have kids in high school. Uh, The wife is up at 6 a.m. helping her sons get ready for school, doing lunches, making sure they've done their homework, uh, already putting in loads of laundry, and I mean, the the, the routine is fine, uh, worked out, and her husband even, she's been ironing ironing his shirts for his four-day week, uh, weekly business trips, um, which used to involve her driving him to the airport, but now uh, the work pays for him to park. Uh, at the airport, so he drives himself, and previously in years past, he would hurry to get home from these work trips so that he could take the family out on the weekend and go to the park with the kids and all these things, but over time, he hurries back to play a few rounds of golf, and these things bother the wife at some measure, but she uh, quickly pushes those thoughts out because she says, he's a good provider, and I have my I have my focuses as well. And she trusts her husband because he's trustworthy and he, he, he isn't intending to do anything. And that's why when a woman gets hired to work with him, he doesn't even think about it and doesn't even meet her for a few months until one day uh, she gets assigned to go on these business trips with him. And since she's 10 years younger than him, he almost feels compelled to protect her like an older brother because so many people are coming up, uh, so many men are approaching her. And over time, maybe it was the 
uh, massive amount of time that they spent together. Maybe it was that they would sit next to each other on these airplane flights for hours and talk. And she would respect him and listen to him. He would find himself less excited to go home. Without realizing it, he was beginning to compare this woman to his wife. And this man realized that he had not fallen off the cliff yet, but he knew something was going on in his heart, and he knew he was in great danger. You feeling this? The, how this can happen? Guys, nobody gets married today and says at the wedding altar, I give my body to this person, but not my heart. Not my affections. No, nobody says that. No, nobody gets married and says, I don't care if my spouse falls in love with, desires, is emotionally connected with another man or another woman other than me. Nobody says that. Now, listen to this. A recent study showed that half of the divorce filings in recent years have included the word Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as part of the uh, divorce filing. So that half of the divorce is listed as a major reason for the divorce, their spouse reconnecting with some old friend or former girlfriend, not even meeting them. Just talking on the phone, just emails, secret texting. And that being a primary reason for the divorce. And maybe somebody would say, well, why did the spouse take that relationship? It's just a friendship, just a relationship, nothing happened. Why would they take it so serious? Because what happens oftentimes is if one spouse finds out about the other spouse, the spouse will say, you need to cut that friendship off. It's not appropriate. I don't want you talking to that person. And then there's great defensiveness. There's great uh, resistance against that. It almost feels like you're breaking up with that person to them. Like there's almost a divorce because the emotional bond is so strong. And many people, maybe not in this church, but in the culture at least, would say, that's just a jealous spouse. It's just a friendship. And I would just ask, how do you account for half of the divorces pointing to these friendships? Do you think all these spouses are overly jealous? Or might they know that the marriage covenant is more than physical and sexual, but also emotional and relational? There are ways to violate the marriage covenant that are more than physical. At least that's what all these couples feel. One article I read called, it's called 10 Red Flags of, an emotional, of emotional Adultery, lists red flag number one is you say, we're just friends. Quote, if you have caught yourself thinking or saying, but we're just friends, you are probably already in trouble. But we're just friends are four of the most dangerous words for a relationship. These words are usually said to rationalize something that you know is wrong. And so I think this father, he's very wise. What does he say to his son? Do not get close to her. Do, he says literally, do not go near the door of her house. What is that modern day translation? Don't get on her profile. Don't start looking through her pictures. Definitely don't privately contact her or him. First Peter 3 says, it, it commends a man and says this is ideal for a man to be a one woman man. A one woman man. Not a woman that he's physically with and another woman he's emotionally with a one woman man deuteronomy 521 you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and if not even not even in emotional ways you should not covet your neighbor's wife listen to this genesis 225 we often don't think of this verse this way but listen to this the man and the woman were both naked and unashamed every commentator nearly, that, I, that I've read on this passage, says something more is being described there by the nakedness and unashamedness than just physical. It certainly means that, but it goes beyond just physical. It's, it's getting at this oneness emotionally, this spiritual and relational oneness that you have with no other. 
here's a way that um, I will always be so thankful for for Paul Washer. Uh, right before me and Priscilla got married, uh, he gave a uh, a sermon and said to the man before he before the young man went down the wedding altar, uh, he commissioned the man and said, "Sir, when you walk down the aisle and make your vows in a moment." From this day forward, your relationship with every other woman on this earth must change. I think that's right. I know a counselor who in pre-marriage counseling will actually uh, separate the couple at one point and talk with them privately and and then ask this question. What are you going to do the first time you begin to feel about someone else what you currently feel for your fiancé? probing question. Uh, Many years ago, I I preached on this topic, and when I was uh, preparing for that sermon, I found an article. I I can't remember who who this was through. It was a psychological journal, a secular psychological journal, and they talked about uh, how to recognize emotional adultery, and it listed off a a lot of these things. And so I found that, uh, that list, and then I looked at Proverbs 7 this week, and I tried to line them up. How much is, is just the worldly wisdom of a, of a psychological journal who's talking about emotional adultery and the father in Proverbs 7? How much overlap is there? And it was, it, it's actually quite shocking. Uh, Proverbs 7, verse 7 says, I have seen a young man lacking sense passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening of the time of night and darkness. So he's describing secrecy. Start changing their normal routines and duties to talk again. Take the road near her house. They start having conversations and and activities not involving the spouse, secret to their spouse. Verse 18 says, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon, he will come home. So they're trying to create a situation where they can have an experience with each other that they don't want their spouses to be a part of. Just something for them. Um, They secretly plan to talk, to meet. They're altering normal routines. These are all the things that that article described as part of this process. And you go, well, how do you avoid it? Well, the father tells the son in chapter 5, verse 8, keep your way far from her. Which doesn't sound that profound, but if you actually obeyed that, you would never commit adultery. If you never desired her beauty, if you never looked at the profile and got the phone number or made the, 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 the private chat or conversation, you would never move into these places. And look, there's some things, guys, you just don't do because they are so incredibly foolish and dangerous and deadly. You just don't do them. And this is what the father is saying to his son. Don't get even near her. Avoiding adultery isn't complicated. It's very, very simple. You say, well, it's not that simple because the illustrations you've given assume that you cannot be around a person. What if you work around them all the time or something? What if, it, what if it's a situation where you can't be away from them and you are with them, and I would say this, I heard a a really wise woman once uh, answer the question, how did she guard herself from emotional adultery? And listen to how wise this woman was. She said, I didn't let my heart go there. Even if you can't physically be removed from another person, you can guard your heart from that person. That is possible, and it would guard you. But it's very dangerous, uh, this, again, the father warns his son, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. There's flirting involved. There's things that often mask and disguise all of this. There's a professor at Southern Seminary who said, she inflates his ego with hollow praise in ways the wife will not. So you picture a situation where the wife's at home, struggling to raise the kids, you know, not always happy with him, not always honoring and respecting him. Her tone isn't like the lady at work. 
who's respecting him, who's all dressed nice, always has her makeup on, always in her best, right? He's, having, he's seeing both of these things. And then on top of that, listen to what the father says. Verse 3, the lips of, for, of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. And, and bitter wormwood, we don't use that, but it's, uh, if mixed with gall, it's poisonous. And so we know he's warning his son. Uh, it might taste sweet at first, but it's a deadly poison, son. Be extremely careful. And then in Proverbs 6, it's interesting, uh, in this context of warning his son about adultery, he lists six things that God hates. That's not random. Five of those six, it just, it seems to me, are directly connected to adultery. Lies. He mentions twice, lies and the one who breathes out lies. It says God hates that. You know, no adultery happens without lies, typically. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, cleverly devised and calculated secret plans. It talks of the one who sows discord. What does an adulterer do? They sow discord in the marriage. All of that this father is warning his son, God hates these things. Stay away from these things, son. Because it will inevitably lead to what? The third point, physical adultery. Physical adultery. Which, listen, you can't, in the Bible, disconnect physical adultery from the consequences that come with it. It never does that. You can't just read a verse about a, a physical adultery and it not be connected to some series of consequences. There's always a connection. Listen to Proverbs six twenty seven. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. It's the father's words to his son. Listen, a, a commentator said this. What was first a private relationship has now been made public. The young man chose the words of the adulteress over the words of his teachers. And in Proverbs, that's the ultimate act of foolishness. He will pay for his mistake at every level. And that's what it describes. In chapter 6, verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. You say, what does that mean, destroying yourself? It means destruction at literally every level. Emotionally, physically, socially, financially, spiritually, the emotional consequences, what he thought would bring happiness actually brings despair and depression. The physical consequences could be uh, just the ex how exhausting it is to lie and deceive, it could be HIV or AIDS. It could be the severe revenge of the person that you committed adultery with or their spouse. Actually, the father warns the son about that. He's essentially saying, if you commit adultery, you better sleep with one eye open, son. You better always look over your shoulder. He says in chapter 6, verse 32, jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. These are vivid warnings of a father to a son. Socially, he would lose honor and respect at work, family, friends. Proverbs 5.14, I am at the brink of ruin in, in the assembled congregation. Even at church, he would feel shame and guilt. Financially, there would be consequences with divorce often following adultery and divorce courts and child support and all these things that are very expensive spiritually. Uh, if not repented of, there are eternal consequences. The, the consequences for adultery are utterly devastating. And I know we can easily think, well, that's those Christians in those churches that don't have good theology. That's like really immature people. Guys, how, I mean, we know this stuff is not true. There's people that you've respected, names you know, respected teachers, writing books, pastoring big churches, falling into adultery. 
I mean, we know this stuff. Who's exempt? Who isn't in danger? Howard Hendricks conducted a study with a group of 246 men in full-time ministry who had fallen into adultery. After interviewing each man, he found four common characteristics that apply to everybody. None had any type of personal accountability. None had any daily time alone in prayer of the word. More than 80% committed physical adultery only after emotional boundaries being crossed. And without exception, each of the 246 had been convinced, convinced, this will never happen to me. I would never do this. Which someone, just pause for a second. Some of you are like, are you trying to scare us, pastor? And I would say, I am trying to terrify you. (laughs) More than scare. I don't want you to trust yourself. The father in Proverbs didn't want his son to trust himself. He said in chapter 3, verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's saying stop trusting yourself. If King David, a man after God's own heart, who loved the Lord, I dare say, more than any of us here, could fall into adultery, you're a sitting duck. And I can back this up statistically. Uh, Studies are showing Someone who says, I would never commit adultery on my spouse is actually at a greater risk of doing it later in life. Because, why? Because Satan loves to take someone who lets down all their guards and says, no need to protect myself, I would never do such a thing. And they put down every guard. They put down every protective measure. That's the easiest person to take down. Full of pride. God gives grace to the humble He takes down the prideful. It's very dangerous to say that we would never do something. Uh, I heard a man frustrated. I've heard actually many men frustrated um, over the fact, oh, my wife doesn't trust me. You know what, sir? (laughs) You shouldn't trust you. (laughs) Really. We we, we should not trust ourselves. We are all one bad decision away from something like this. Maybe led by some other little small compromises. But we need to feel very dependent on God and not ourselves. Here's five protective measures. I'll say these in closing. We can build out these more in city group. Five protections against adultery from this passage. These are things the father says to his son. If you were to ask me, now say this on the first one, what is, apart from fearing the Lord, which we'll get to in a moment, what is the greatest thing you can do to protect your marriage against adultery? I would say what the father says to his son here, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. And if you don't know what that means, check the context later. That's the first thing. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Number two, get wisdom. Okay, this is clearly the most important thing in the father's mind to help his son. He just keeps saying over and over again, all through these chapters, get wisdom, son, to avoid adultery. So to the degree in which you get wisdom, you won't be deceived into the lies that lead to adultery. And I would say wisdom isn't just having a lot of Bible knowledge or something or, or, or uh, something along those measures. Wisdom is also things like this, working hard and not being lazy. The father actually in chapter 6 connects guarding from adultery and not being lazy. And you say, well, that's a weird connection to make. Well, is it? Think about David falling into adultery. What was the context? David, it says, was the king. He should have been off with his men at war. But in the middle of the day, what is he doing? He's laying on his couch, not working. And the door opened up. Keep yourself busy is wisdom. 
keep yourself busy doing good godly things God's called you to is extreme wisdom. Number three, reproofs of discipline. This is what the Father says in chapter 6, verse 23. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So there's some connection between discipline and being guarded from the adulteress. Um, I, I was going to, but I decided not to read this long confession of a pastor who fell into adultery. He wrote it a few years ago, and he summed up, he said so many wise things, but one of the things that he mentioned in his prayer, basically apologizing to everybody in his life for what he had, what he had done, he said this, I'll take one little portion here. He said, I'm deeply thankful to my heavenly father for graciously exposing this sin and forcing me to turn from it. The promise that he chastises those he loves so that his children might share in his holiness gives me hope and comfort. My present and painful circumstances have become to both my wife and me the gracious verifications of God's loving fatherhood in my life. He understood the chastising and disciplining of the Lord is going to guard him from future adultery. In fact, it'll bring him out of it. Um, it is a protective measure. Number four, fear bitterness. Fear that your heart would get bitter. Um, I believe that bitterness is actually the cause of much adultery. I think, I think adultery is often committed out of anger, out of revenge for a spouse who hurt someone or hurt you in a way that you want to get even with them. And it's interesting that in Proverbs 6, 1 to 5, and I won't read that whole part, but it, it warns the son to hurry up and reconcile any resolved conflicts. And I don't, I don't think that's with the person that, uh, the spouse of the person he may have committed adultery with. I think it's meaning it's his relationship with his spouse. Reconcile that relationship, your marriage, be in peace with your marriage, get rid of any anger or bitterness out of your heart in your marriage to guard yourself from adultery. And I can tell you, go ask a wise counselor who spends a lot of time in the counseling room, and there is a connection between bitterness and adultery. There really is. We should fear bitterness. We should forgive our spouse and re reconcile. Uh, it, is, it is a way to guard ourselves. And then lastly, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the greatest protective measure against adultery. It is. Uh, it is. Think about Joseph. Joseph being pursued every day by Potiphar's wife. Why did he not commit adultery? She's pursuing him daily, coming after him. But what did he say? He said, how could I do this great evil and sin against the Lord? How could I sin against the God that I love? Proverbs 16, 6, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Joseph feared the Lord, so he turned away from evil, and he hated the evil of adultery. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. So the fear of the Lord guards us so that we're not even, so that if nobody even knows what we're thinking, nobody knows who we're talking to, nobody knows where we're going, God knows God sees. Proverbs 5.21, the father says, A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his path. For the believer, that holds weight. God knows. God sees. It matters before God. Not just that I might get caught, but listen to this. The fear of the Lord, also that God is a God that forgives sin. Now that sounds like a weird connection. How would the fear of God and the forgiveness of sin ever go together? Well, listen to Psalm 130, verse 3. I read this uh, just a moment ago with our confession. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fear of the Lord, if it's a true fear of the Lord, 
doesn't make you run from God and hide. A true fear of the Lord actually makes you draw near to the Lord. It brings you close. Because you know what happens to those who run from him and reject him. And you know what happens to those who draw near to him. They receive grace. Love, compassion, mercy, forgiveness. Say, I'm going to say this in closing. What about the one who has committed adultery already? And here's what I would say, just very simply. You prove your fear of the Lord by repenting of sin. And as you repent of that sin, you prove to be one who is forgiven. And that's why the table is a great blessing this morning for anyone here who actually has committed adultery. Maybe that's physical. Maybe it's at the heart level. That would include a lot more of us. But there's forgiveness that he may be feared, that he may be loved, that we may live lives that honor him. Let's come to this table, church. Believe the gospel, the forgiveness that's available in Christ. Let's call upon him for extra strength. Psalm 85, 9 says, His salvation is near to those who fear him. Uh, for those of you who are new, we, as we come to the table, we believe uh, that Christ has given this to those who have received him by faith and those who have been baptized into his name. So if you have received Christ by faith and you've been baptized, uh, please join us. Uh, if you will be refraining in your bulletin, uh, you will find some meaningful prayers that you can pray during this time. Uh, church, let's prepare our hearts to come to the Lord with great confidence and joy. Father, we, we thank you for your son who died to forgive adulterers. Among many other sins. But adulterers. Physical. Heart. Whatever level. Lord we thank you that you are a God that. Cancels records of wrongs. That cleanses from all sin. And that not only forgives us Lord. But that. Because of that forgiveness, you put a fear in us so that we want to honor you. We want to be faithful to our spouses. We want to live lives that bring you maximum glory on this earth. And so we praise you for these realities. We confess our sins and we remember the blood of your son that cleanses us from all sin. Lord, root us in these things again as we come to the table. I pray this in Jesus' name.